Before we get into the text, just a couple of things to remind you or mention real quickly that didn't get necessarily covered in the announcements. Um, some people have asked about our next tour to Israel. Actually, we have a Footsteps of Paul tour, which is basically Greece and Turkey, next October 15th. Uh, if you're interested, there's an add-on to a tour of Israel, so basically doing the footsteps of Paul and the footsteps of Jesus. So if you're interested, uh, there are brochures, I believe, available someplace out there. Um, ask somebody who might know, but I don't know who that person would be, but they're out there someplace, or you can find it online. Also, again, Drew mentioned the Heart Academy registration. Registrations have to be in by January uh, because if there's not enough signups, then we're not going to go forward with the program. So if you're interested in getting your kids into that program, then you need to move fairly quickly. And last of all, we're scheduling a marriage retreat for the first weekend in March and uh, there's information available online and also in the back regarding that as well. So anyway, I did all those things and I won't get in trouble when I get home. G.J. Kesterton once said that uh, New Year's was not about the beginning of a new year as much as it was the beginning, the beginning of a new soul. And what he meant was, and he even went on further saying, it's developing a new backbone. And I think as I look back on the last few years, which have hardly been <clears throat> um, happy years for most of us, they've brought a lot of stress and strain and difficulty, a lot of disappointment. I mean, they really have been, I think, by simple definition, they've been tough. They've had a number of ex unexpected downturns and many disappointments. I mean, if you think about it, we went from lockdowns and vaccines and mandates that led to kind of a dramatic drop in, in life expectancy and an extreme content, uh, enrichment of pharmaceutical companies. At the same time, they're followed by increasing questions and concerns that we have about the, really the integrity of the medical and scientific community. Do they speak the truth? And how do we get truth anymore anymore? There, this was all immediately followed by a devastating retreat from Afghanistan, soon to be followed by a war in Ukraine. God forbid that we should be without a war. And basically, there was tremendous benefit, we find now, to the military-industrial complex, organizations, companies like Raytheon and General Dynamics and Boeing's and et al. In fact, CNN recently reported that the defense stocks have spiked as they said in one article, many eventually climbing to their highest points in years. So as the economy sinks and cost of living goes up and inflation spikes, we find that at least people who are in the defense industry are doing extremely well. In fact, the CEO of Raytheon recently admitted, he says, war is good for business. I don't know if there's any coincidence that our Secretary of Defense used to be on the board of directors of Raytheon before he took his position as Secretary of Defense, but I kind of think that there is a uh, trading of positions back and forth, and it makes you question about the integrity of these people. In fact, I would say we live in such a time of morally compromised leadership, I find it so ironic that many of them are exercised over politicians who lie while they themselves lie continually, all, all the time that this is going on, we're trying to placate an increasingly aggressive China, while at the same time, we're totally ignoring the full-scale invasion of our southern border. And uh, with all of that <clears throat> leading to over 100,000 fentanyl deaths every year, 
We're told that inflation is transitory even as it decimates small businesses, the poor, and even the middle class. Uh, many people are seeing their 401ks uh, deteriorate into 201ks. And the bureaucrats keep on tinkering in ways that exasperate the problem by putting up more and more roadblocks and restrictions on shipping and transportation and creating shortages in, in fuel and food and housing, leading to increased prices and goods and services, while Congress continues to spend away our future, fighting faux fears like climate change, diversity, and sexual identity. But at least there's the media whose mandate is to tell the truth. But in fact, we are discovering even more so that they are part of a state-run propaganda machine. Even as schools and libraries are being turned into indoctrination centers for sexual perverts and purveyors of racial and religious bigotry. And the church all the while remains largely silent, hiding behind a canard, canard saying that we don't want to become political which I think misses the point because I think it's more about becoming moral. So you might ask at this moment in time, what in the world does any of that have to do with Acts chapter 28? Nothing, I just wanted to get it off my chest. <laughs> no, actually, it has quite a bit to do with Acts chapter 28. It has a lot to do with perspective. You know what perspective is. It's having a point of view by which you evaluate things more objectively. You see, when we read in chapter 28, we need to understand that the world was not any better at that time. And maybe even in many ways, it was far worse than the things we're having to wrestle with. Then those days, all governments were corrupt and oppressive and were pretty much unapologetic about it. They didn't feel like there was anything wrong. Life in general was short. It was hard. It was mostly cruel. People's personal rights were something that was essentially unknown. You didn't complain because you knew that there was no reason to complain. There was nobody who was going to be listening. That poverty, disease, and death were ubiquitous. The rich got obscenely rich, and the poor got obscenely poor, and most people simply assumed that that's the way it was supposed to be, because they concluded that if you were wealthy, the gods liked you, and if you were poor, the gods didn't like you. It was just that simple. And Rome, with its population of one million people, the first city in the history of the world to have a population of one million, and there wouldn't be another city that had that many people until the 1840s when London reached one, one million population. But Rome, with half a million of its, or half of its citizens being slaves, was the epicenter of everything, not only politically and economically, but it was the epicenter of everything that was good, bad, and ugly. Anything that was wrong, anything that was unjust, anything that was cruel in the world was to be found in great abundance in Rome, which is why God dumped Paul in the middle of it. I mean, we have to rethink about this because we see these things in a very sterile way when we read the story. Here's Paul basically going from Jerusalem to Rome, the Rome which is the center of everything. You think, well, that makes sense to put somebody like him in the center of it, but it was the center of the cesspool. 
It was the center of everything that was ugly and horrible. And it wasn't at that time even a beautiful city. It was a city that had been overtaken with urban sprawl. Most of the buildings were made out of wood so that some years later when there was a great fire that burned the city, burned something like 13 of the 16 districts of the city of Rome, leaving hundreds of thousands homeless and even more dead, Nero chose to blame it on the Christians, and that was what led to Paul's second imprisonment and ultimate execution as well as Peter's. But when you think about the city of Rome, think of a city that is narrow streets, dirty, muddy, clapboard buildings with rats and people scrambling to stay alive, that everyone who can cheat and steal and lie is busily engaged in what they do, that gangs control large sections of the city. It really was a quite dark and horrible and ugly place. You would be hard-pressed to find any city in the world today that would come to such a low condition as it was in those days. The closest we have to it is probably downtown Los Angeles, which is why God sent Paul there in the first place. He didn't, he, he didn't fly him off to St. Croix so he could enjoy the beach because he was a beach person. He didn't send him there to be the Pope. He sent them as a prisoner. He thrust him into the midst of everything that was going on, and he took him there by the most uncomfortable route you could possibly imagine. Think about Paul's circumstance. He faced multiple, almost incessant attempts upon his life, not only by man, but even nature seemed to be plotting against him. Storms and disease and other things seemed to be part of his daily companionship. And having survived to this point, he gets bit by a snake of all things. You know, you ever had those kind of days like everything has gone wrong and now this? <laughs> I can imagine. I'm just picking up sticks and all of a sudden I got a snake hanging off my arm that has bitten me. And then rather than people coming up and saying, oh, let us help you, they're saying, yeah, he probably deserved it. Let's just stand and watch and see what happens as he goes into convulsions, foams at the mouth, and then dies. But even surviving that, he's rechained and he's carted off to Rome to be falsely tried for treason. And when he does arrive in Rome, even his fellow countrymen are not all that excited to see him. In fact, as they explained, people everywhere are talking against this sect. So basically, you're starting off with everybody suspicious and distrustful of you. You're brought as a prisoner. You're in chains you're being tried by the emperor, and everybody who's heard anything about you has heard just nothing but bad news. And that, my friend, is the beginning of the good news. It reminds me of a story I heard many years ago of a businessman who opened up a furniture store in a small town. And he knew in order to get business, he had to really be able to price his product at a lower price than his competitors. So his prices were incredibly aggressive and really a great discount. And so people started coming in, and very soon they began to share with their friends the great deals that they had found at this new store. Well, 
his competitors began to spread a rumor about him saying, well, the reason they're cheaper is number one, because they're such poor quality. And secondly, we know that he is involved with criminals. So it's probably stolen goods and that's how he sells it so well. So if you wanna let that kind of person into our, in our community, go ahead and support him. But you're making a major mistake because he's just not somebody we should support in this community. One of his employees heard the story and he was pretty concerned. He went to him and said, this is what you're saying about us. And he looked at him and he said, don't worry. At least they're talking about us. If they don't say anything, they'll never come to see what we're doing. Many people will just show up out of curiosity and then they'll see the prices and they'll buy the product. And I almost think that's almost how Paul thought, that everywhere he went, he was not celebrated, he was not applauded, he was not, didn't have a crowd of people waiting out to get his signature. He had people who distrusted him, and we see that throughout his story of one who he said, basically, we're treated as the off-scouring of the earth. And that comes as a surprise to most of us because we live in an era where the memory of Paul is always in a burnished way. I mean, I was in London just recently and they have a St. Paul's Cathedral. It's, it's like the Vatican in London. It's this huge, massive, beautiful, ornate cathedral with his name right on the top of it. Now, he was never there. He never worshipped there. But nonetheless, there are St. Paul's all over the place. In fact, uh, Mark Twain in, his, in his, uh, one of his books, uh, An Innocent Abroad, writes about his tour around the world. And he was talking about going through Italy and how that the, the tour guide was taking him from church to church. And he took him into this one church and he said, well, in this church we have the skull of the St. Paul. He thought, oh, that's interesting. The next day, he took him to another church, and he said, we have the skull of St. Paul in this church. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yesterday, you said this church had St. Paul's skull. Today, you're telling me this church has a skull. Which one is it? And he says, oh, well, this second one was when he was a young man. <laughs> you see, the problem you have is that we kind of create images in our own minds, our own understanding of things, and even though we may get the wording right and the statements correct and the theology even correct, we may not really understand the more fabrile side of the story, the, the, the more tensile part of it, where we actually can feel what it was like. And I think one of the things we need to be dispelled in, in this age of our desire for luxury and pleasure and all those sorts of things, is that Paul wasn't a celebrity and he wasn't one who was feted as was such. He wasn't famous. He, if he was known, he was infamous, which doesn't mean more than famous. It means that you're viewed negatively by most people who saw you. And so Paul went into every circumstance, every encounter with this awareness that he was not going to be applauded necessarily and that he was going to meet a tremendous amount of disapproval. And I think that when you look at what he had gone through, after all the noble services and the sacrifices he'd made, that he's still a prisoner, that for the next two years he would remain such until he is finally acquitted, the only fair thing that actually happened to him over that previous three years it would have been very easy for him, as it can become sometimes for you and me, 
to become pretty negative and pretty dark and pretty discouraged, even depressed, given the fact that the threats against him were unremitting for his entire life, that obstacles he faced were put there intentionally and repeatedly simply to discourage him from continuing on. And yet that's not what happened with Paul because what becomes clear as we read his writings, that's not how his mind worked. As he later related to the Philippians when he said, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You know, it's a matter of how you measure success, I guess, isn't it? How do you measure success? I mean, if success is having things go the way you want them to go in the timing and the manner and at the, at the cost consequence that you want, and then that's, that's a positive thing. But when things don't go the way you want them to go and they're rather difficult and hard, do you think about the fact that God may be orchestrating things in such a way to bring about a result different than you would have imagined. Because that's the way that Paul looked at it. He says, I've gone through all of this stuff, and yet when I look at it, everything, ironically, has not been for loss, but it has been for gain. That everything has read to, led to an increase, not a decrease, in terms of the advancement of the gospel. It's kind of a wonderment if you think about it. I mean, it's like, here is Paul who is a prisoner in Jerusalem and then in Caesarea, and now he's standing before the most powerful people in the world, and he's not have an opportunity to talk to them. And he says, because of those dynamics later on in that same letter, he says, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. So Paul did not allow himself to be defined by the circumstances he was in. But he learned to be content in whatever that might be because he knew that God's intention was to use whatever he put him through to advance the thing that mattered most to Paul, and that was the gospel. And I think that's often the dividing line between us and that Pauline kind of heart where he was. Because I think if you and I are honest, we're not going to say to ourselves, maybe to others, but we wouldn't honestly say to the mirror, my most pressing desire is to see the gospel of Christ advanced into the world at whatever cost. In fact, I found in my mind that I have actually, you know, basically a price range in which I want the gospel to be advanced. God, I'm willing to do this and I'm willing to do that, but don't touch this, whatever you do. This is off off. Off the, off the table. It's not, not open for you to do what you want to do. And that's a problem because Paul said what he had learned was a secret. I had learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether I was well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, because he said, I realized first and foremost, I can do everything through him who gives me the strength. Now, this is an important thing. I mean, we talk about this, but it's such an important thing to realize that I can do everything that he wants me to do because he'll give me the strength. Now, what does that imply? It implies that I have to be in a situation where I don't have any strength. That's not a place where I want to be. 
It's not something that I say, boy, I want to get to that place where I have nothing left to give so that I can see how great God can be. Think about that for a moment. I, I doubt seriously you view it that way either. Our natural indication is, God, make me feel healthy, wealthy, and wise so I can do my best for you. And God says, you know, if you really want to make people amazed, I'm going to take somebody like you who is young, stupid, has no future, intellectually challenged, and, and I'm going to do great things through you because they're going to look at that and go, that's got to be God, that can't be you. Wait a minute, how can I become a celebrity? Kim Kardashian will never drop my name. I mean, how is this going to work? And we find ourselves really having this battle inside of ourselves, don't we? I mean, I know, I know, I hope you do because I do. <laughs> Recently, when my wife and I got stuck in London for 15 hours on our way to Israel, and, and everything was just not going well, and I just discovered uh, as I tried to get help at the airport, I realized now I know why they lost their empire. <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> no, they don't give a rip. Can you tell me how to get from here? Yeah, you just go through that door and you follow the blue line. You got that, that, and they'll take you over there, and then you walk through that and you go there. It's just, it's really short, about two miles. Okay. But you see, Paul didn't allow himself to be controlled by circumstances. But I like the way that Peter talked about it when he talked about the origins of Scripture. He said in his second letter, he said, these were holy men of God, they were prophets of God, who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How did they write the text of Scriptures? The Holy Spirit kind of picked them up and carried them along. They, in their own writing, had no idea the import of what they were doing, and yet God was carrying them along. And it's coming to a peace, I think, with the nature of our own impotence that is sadly missing in a day that puts all its evidence, uh, emphasis upon competence. We put our emphasis upon competence and the idea of becoming impotent is terrifying to us. And so even if we are impotent, we're going to pretend like we're not. We're going to pretend like we understand what's going on, that we have a control over this, that we see where this is leading. <coughs> Excuse me. I have this health drink called coffee. <coughs> I don't let anything unclean come into my body. Other than coffee and Coke and candy, I, I keep my body pure. I mean, God did make sugar, didn't he? Anyway. <coughs> but he said, I can do anything because God gives me the strength. Secondly, he says, I can do anything because the Holy Spirit carries me along. Even when I don't have the strength to be carried along, I can still be carried along by God to accomplish things that he would never imagine. Because thirdly, he said in Romans 8, in verse 26, he says, because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. I say all of this because I, I don't think that you know this. I, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this information. But we're still terrified of our weakness. We're terrified of feeling like we're not up to snuff. And, and we've been fed a kind of a diet that <coughs> has, <re> <coughs> excuse me, has really promoted the idea that we have to be 
as good or better than the secular world. I think even when Billy Graham many years ago, innocently enough, asked the question, he said, why should the devil have all the good music? And so as a whole generation, my generation said, we've got to create music that is competitive with the secular world. And we began to turn our musical expression in the church into stuff that was very contemporary and hip and we want to be as good as or better than. But as Matt Redman ultimately came to the conclusion one day when he's writing a worship course, he says, look what we've done. We've made it all about us and not about you. When I first got saved and... and uh, we, there was no contemporary Christian music, believe it or not, it was so far back. Um, they, we were still, you know, <coughs> stringing cat guts on, on tubs and playing those for drum, you know, for darts. But I remember how we worshiped God because we just got usually sat around with, if somebody had a guitar, that was a real plus, but if they didn't, we just sang. And we never had any conscience about how, how well we sounded or was it musically appealing or any of those kind of things. We just sang because we wanted to worship God. And yet today, it's become an entire industry that makes hundreds of millions of dollars and makes millionaires out of Christian artists who are called Christian artists not because they're spiritually mature or they have really done anything notable other than the fact they've been born with a good voice and they write a catchy tune that has a great hook in it that makes us want to sing it over and over again. And I don't mean to besmirch the whole industry, but I'm just simply saying that somehow we elevate that to a level of celebrity status. And, 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 and we have pastors who become celebrity pastors and who, uh, you know, have to have a Gulfstream 4 in order to help them better utilize the, the time that they have in spreading their anointing around the world. And I'm just suggesting that we've entered into a cultural mindset that is so far removed from anything that the Bible would even think about, and yet to us it's become the normalcy and the expectation. Paul said, you know, you have to understand that God reduced me to the lowest place so that I would find a strength that was not anywhere to be found within myself. It was a strength that was, came from him and that I realized that circumstances, no matter how bad they were, were not the definer because the Holy Spirit was going to carry me through those circumstances. And then he said, because the Holy Spirit is going to help me, he goes on to say, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's will. And we know, he says, therefore, he comes to this conclusion, all things work for good for those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose, for those who God foreknew that he did predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And keep in mind, the likeness of his son doesn't mean just his healing and teaching ministries. It includes the, the cross as well. To conform us to the cross of Christ. You see, Paul's confidence, his positivity was not based upon circumstances becoming smooth or leveling out. It became that rather than how rough the waters, all that mattered to him was that the gospel was progressing. 
that no matter how much he lost and he decreased and he suffered, there was this unstoppableness about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he focused not on the discomforts, but on the gains of the gospel. And in this whole account that we've been looking at of Paul, there were many gains. I mean, first of all, there were many on the ship, many of his shipmates who ended up giving their life to Christ because of the near-death experience they had. And there were many who on the island of Malta, which had been completely unreached by the gospel, who ended up becoming Christians. And there's even a Christian church there to this very day that's sustained all sorts of invasions by the Muslims and other groups. And the church in Malta continues to go forward. That many, he tells us, in Caesar's household would come to Christ through his imprisonment. He said in Philippians 4.22, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. And he fulfilled his lifelong desire where he said to the Romans, I plan many times to come to you in order that I may have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. In fact, he wrote of his most important letters. Some of his most important letters were written from his imprisonment. He wrote the letter to the Ephesians and the Colossians and the Philippians and Philemon. And Luke also completed not only the gospel, but the book of Acts during this time in Paul's lives. So a major portion of the whole New Testament that we have came as a consequence of Paul being held as a prisoner in Rome. And lastly, he was able to bring clarity into a church that was deeply divided on the relationship between the law and the church, where he says from morning till evening he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them that Jesus was Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets, and some of them were convinced. Now, granted, Paul was not completely successful in that endeavor. It says some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. Yet Paul <coughs> continued undeterred. It says for two full years, he stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Boldly, he continued to preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he actually created a very important distinction between Christianity and Judaism. A distinction that wasn't all that clear. You see, the church in Rome, <clears throat> like Rome itself, was a melting pot of people and religions and cultures. I mean, Rome was the central place that people came to do business and to get rich and to accomplish things. And uh, we don't have any evidence that the church in Rome was founded by any apostle or any single individual. In fact, despite the claims of the Roman church and others that Peter or somebody else founded the church, the reality is that they were probably converts from the day of Pentecost who heard Peter's preaching and were baptized on the day of Pentecost who it says amongst that crowd were visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism that when the festival was over, they returned to Rome and began to share in the synagogues their discovery of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, according to the Roman historian Suetonius, this had created so much controversy, so much conflict, <coughs> that, well, 
excuse me, he writes the following. He says, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the institution of Crestus, Emperor Claudius expelled them from Rome. <clears throat> so back in chapter 19 of Acts, we read about Apollos and uh, uh, Apollos and, and uh, that other woman. Yes, I mean, Aquila and Priscilla, excuse me. About <coughs> Aquila and Priscilla being kicked out of Rome by Claudius because they were part of that controversy. They were Jewish Christians who were trying to convince their brothers and sisters in the synagogues that Jesus was the Messiah. And rather, rather than bringing peace, it was bringing increasing conflict and difficulty. And so Claudius said, you know, pox on all your house. Get out of town. You can't stay here anymore. Well, eventually here now, 10 years later, Paul reappears and he's attempting to address the issue yet again to bring some kind of unity, but all he really brings is really is a clarity. Rather than bringing them together, it would be something that would push them further apart. And that's why Paul provided the answer for why they were divided. He said, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear. They've closed their eyes. They do not understand with their hearts. You see, what's easy for us to miss in Paul's citation of Isaiah is like Isaiah, he was not trying to reach the masses, but rather the remnant. Again, this is the concept in our culture that's a little bit abstract because we think of everything in terms of how do you reach the mass. The whole idea of advertising and commercials and promoting stuff. In fact, the whole movement of the <clears throat> 1990s in Christianity was marketing the church the way the world markets soda pop. And so we even see now these television commercials where somebody presents the gospel in a very short and brief and concise way maybe, but it's hardly giving it the kind of texture and depth and meaning that the gospel message requires. That we live in this world of <clears throat> whatever Twitter is anymore, I don't know, 140 characters or whatever it is. We want everything in that short, concise, easily digestible idea so that we look on Instagram to get these little quips and quotes. And I read all the time on their statements about this and about that, but I am left with this feeling that they touch something only in part, but they really never deal with the depth of what it's all about. And they leave people with simplistic platitudes that they think they can just paste on the refrigerator and it will change the texture and the flow and the dynamic of their entire lives. And then we're puzzled because it doesn't happen that way. That even our pulpits have been reduced to <clears throat> not proclaiming the word of God, not teaching the scriptures in depth, but really coming up with little clever phrases that we can hang out there and people can grab on and repeat. And somehow that's going to make them different in their life to the point where we even make nonsense promises to people. I love the guy who said, this is the year of the thousand percent blessing. If you send to me $1,000, God is going to multiply your blessing 1,000 times. I'm going, that's a million bucks. And I'm thinking to myself, if that's so true, why doesn't he do that? 
Why don't you send me $1,000 so you can become a millionaire overnight? It never seems to want to go that way. But people listen to this kind of stuff and and it flows all through the media. You know, you buy this supplement and it will change your life. You get this thing and rub it on your skin and you look like you're 20 again. And I found it's true, it's worked. I found I rubbed it on the skin of a 10-year-old and they look 20. <laughs> and people, we, we get bombarded with this idea that you can make these dramatic, significant changes in body, soul, and mind just by buying this product for $29.95 with, a, with an additional uh, shipping and handling charge. Because we've been conditioned to believe that the answers to life should come to us quickly and simply. That when somebody asked me, well, how do you, you and your wife stay married for 52 years? And the answer is real simple. You just never give up. No matter how much you want to, you just realize, no, we're in this for the long haul. Well, at the very least to say, I don't want to stand before the presence of God one day and say, you know, she may hurt my feelings. <laughs> and so I walked out. No, the reality is you realize that life is full of challenges and hardships and difficulties and sacrifices. That's why Paul said such uncomfortable things like, learn to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And I say that because I suspect that it's going to get harder. That Godly clearly loves the masses of humanity, but he also makes it very clear he's not, he's only going to save the remnant. How foreign this is to our modern ears. So interminably concerned with what the majority thinks or the majority feels, or what the polls tell us that 51% of Americans think XYZ. And in doing so, looking at life through that lens, it misses something that's quite central to the Christian call, as Paul expressed when he quoted the prophet Isaiah in 2 Corinthians 6. He said, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. We're not supposed to be going in and learning from them. He says, you should be coming out and being a distinct and separate people. And yet, even within the most popular theologies of our day, I mean, I say this, when you talk about these major religious movements, especially in the charismatic community with, with Bethel and Hillsong and Elevation and all these big name things that create all this really wonderful music, you don't understand what is the driving motion behind all of that. What is the agenda? <coughs> and the agenda is simply called taking the seven mountaintops. You see, their theology is not Christ is going to come and rapture the church. Rather, they have a different theology. They, you know, the millennium is a concept. It's, not, it's something that we have to bring into being. <clears throat> they have this movement called the New Apostolic Reformation that says basically when Christians take over the arts, 
and the family and the media and they take over religion and education and entertainment and business and government. <coughs> those, those are the seven mountaintops of society. The church needs to take over all of those. And when we do that, then we can purify the earth and bring, allow Christ to come back and set up his kingdom. <clears throat> and if you don't believe me, just look it up. They're not shy about saying it. So when I see President Trump surrounded by all these charismatic personalities, when I see different Christian leaders talking about the goals of seeing certain politicians coming into power, when I look back in the years and saying, why did a guy like Pat Robertson run for president? It was because they believed in the seven mountaintop concept of theology that the church needs to take over all the organs of government to make it work. And when we become in charge, when Christians control all the things of the earth, then we'll make it right and good and pure and holy. We can't even make our churches that way. How are we going to take over the governments of the world? We have trouble just getting along and liking each other. How are we going to run the world? I mean, it's so ludicrous, and yet it leads to this kind of pride. In fact, that's why repeatedly we find Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Michael and other prophets using the term the remnant, the remnant, the remnant. The remnant is those who are left after the land has been judged and cleansed. And the book of Revelations very clearly says that the world will be controlled not by the powers of light, but by the powers of darkness. Jeremiah described the problem in his own day when he began by saying the princes are corrupt. Then he added, he said, the prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority and my people love it that way. It's really kind of an interesting thing. My people love it that way. And then he says, but what will you do in the end? You know, I'll admit that in terms of the future of America, I'm fairly pessimistic. I'm not without hope. I'm not without prayer. I believe that that there's an awakening and a repentance that comes into our land, that God can do some amazing things. I just don't see it happening. Because as I look at it, I look at our princes, and that is our political leaders, and like the princes of Judah, they're corrupt. And the level of the corruption goes so deep, and it's so dark, and, and so pervasive, I, I don't have a lot of confidence that these people are willing to cut loose from the purse strings that keep them going. Our prophets, which may be our media, they speak to us lies. Our priests, many of our church leaders, not only neglect the word, but they comply and cavort with the culture. I don't know if I can handle hearing another Christian leader who is sleeping with somebody other than his wife. But the amazing thing is the vast majority of people just simply as Isaiah said, they love it this way. We want it to be like that. You see, the choice before us, the choice that's before you and me right now, 
both as individuals and even as a nation, it's really clearly outlined by Jesus when he said in Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. When I look at the condition of our country and I think about our national leaders, I realize that these are the leaders that we have elected. <clears throat> we may argue about the fairness and the honesty of those elections, but it's amazing when you look at some of the candidates, whether we're talking about Biden or Fetterman or Pelosi, it's amazing that they get anybody to vote for them. And yet they do. And they do get a lot of people. I mean, it's, that's a statement of the mindset of the culture that either doesn't know and doesn't care, but just doesn't really matter to them. It's, it, we have media prophets that stay in business because we support them. <laughs> it's funny because even in the church, when you find guys like Joe Rogan or Elon Musk are kind of being lauded, and these both are men who reject Christ and the gospel, have no interest in following the Lord, and yet we're looking to them for guidance and leadership. And many times we find that people who are in positions of spiritual leadership are allowed to ignore or to violate Scripture, and we become a nation or maybe even a church who Paul would warn, he said, will not put up with sound doctrine. But instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. You see, in my mind, I think that what we need to do is to commit to being part of the remnant, not part of the masses. And again, I, God loves the masses. I'm not saying he doesn't, but he only saves the remnant. Wide is the way that leads to destruction, he said. And many will find that. But maybe even more meaningful is that the remnant is never popular. No, the remnant is never the ones who people are applauding and saying, oh, we just love the way you allow yourself to be rejected and scorned and mistreated and abused. Because when I read through the book of Revelation, especially the chapters 2 and 3, what I find so striking is that there are seven churches mentioned and only two are commended. Five of them are warned that God is going to remove their candlestick. In other words, he's going to take away the franchise. He's going to take, put them out of business. And the ones that he's going to take out of business are the ones who are doing the best externally. The ones he says he will protect are the ones who are suffering, who are being rejected, who are going through hardship, who are enduring persecution. And that's why we have the names of the church of Smyrna, which means being crushed. And the church of Philadelphia, which loves God more than it loves itself. And he said, you'll receive the crown, the blessing. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't think that we should set out on a crusade to make life hard. I don't think you have to work at it. <laughs> Especially with the current regime, they're, they're hard at it for you already. 
But the good thing, the positive thing is, Paul said, but I see gain. I see the gospel gaining ground as people become disillusioned with the system that they've trusted and hoped in. I'm conflicted like you. I don't want to see things <clears throat> deteriorate. At the same time, I pray that people's eyes would be opened. I pray for repentance. I pray for an awakening in our land. I pray for an outgrowing pouring of the Holy Spirit. I, I pray that God would change people and circumstances. And yet, experience has taught me that oftentimes people have to come to the end of themselves before they begin to actually seek God. That was true in my case, and it may be true of everybody else. But, you know, um, believe it or not, <clears throat> on Tuesday I head back to Israel. We have another tour coming up. Um, and all I can say is, it's one of the stupider things I've done in my life. I have not, we have not even recovered from the last trip and we still have a, another group. It was a great trip, one of the best trips we ever had last time. I'm looking forward to that because of how it impacts the lives of people. But when I come back, beginning in February, I'm going to do a new series. I've done it for years. I've done What the World's Coming To. Uh, this one is a little bit different. It's going to be called What the Church is Coming To. And I really want to focus on what do we see coming in terms of the church in a culture that has become incredibly antithetical to people of faith. They become challengers of our faith. And I pray and I hope that God will utilize it to really equip us so that we'll be able to stand fast in the day of adversity, that we'll be committed to following him with all of our hearts soul, mind, body, and strength, regardless of what happens. We don't invite hardship, but we also need to understand that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. As His Holy Spirit carries us along, that what happens is, is we may decrease, but He increases. We may decrease, but He increases. Because ultimately, the thing that only matters at the end of the day is whether people will know come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Everything else is temporary and passes away.